Welcome to Codex Rex, the video game history podcast. I'm your host, Tyler. And I am your complimentary host, Dax. Each episode, we tell a story about video game history and culture uh, to the other one, who really has no idea what I'm going to tell him about today. I know nothing. <laughs> but before we get into all of that, uh, how you doing, Docs? How are things? Well, I'm doing good. I'm, um, I've been studying a lot for university, but I've, I'm g- getting ahead, and I think everything's going to be fine. How are you? Uh, I'm getting ready for a big trip to go visit family on the east coast of the United States. Um, so we're going to fly out there and stay for like three weeks. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like working this crazy job and I'm working on my dissertation still. And I'm just like beat, but, um, but I have been playing games lately. I started up Sekiro at your well, behest. Yeah. Good, so. good plan. I started it up again just to empathize, em, like em, empathize with you. Empathize. Like, yeah. Emp- emphasize. <laughs> Close emp- enough. Words. <laughs> <laughs> Too many, too many English pronunciation things. I just want you all to know, real fast, that Dox's dedication to this podcast, so that we could make sure we got an episode out before I left for vacation. He got up at three in the morning to record this, and I just, I just feel that he deserves some accolades for that. I also look like it. <laughs> you do, you do. <laughs> so but Sekiro. Sekiro, it's a good game. Uh, just play it. There's nothing to say about it. It's a From Software game. Can't do anything wrong with that. That's true. You've been playing Control, right? Yeah, I've completed it. Like 100%ed it. I did everything in that game. It's the, one of the best games I've ever played. And it's it's hard. Like if someone says that, you usually think like, well, that, that's just probably a personal thing or something. This game is, if you know the SCP universe, which is this, if you don't know what this is, it doesn't matter, don't think about it, then Control (laughs) probably also isn't for you. But if you do know it, this is the perfect SCP game. If you've been looking for it, this is it. Play this game. Just saying. Uh, I just want to note that um, that's high marks from Docs. Uh, I constantly... I think of Dox's opinions on video games as slightly curmudgeonly. (laughs) And so usually Dox is not like... Dox is... And I'm going to speak for you. My gist is that your first pass over games, you usually know if you like it like immediately and then you kind of make an assessment on it and you're kind of like, eh, that's a shitty game. I don't really like that loop, right? I don't don't worry too. I I have no regrets shitting on a game. (laughs) Exactly. So I think that's high marks. I really got to play it. I got it in a humble bundle. um, So I own it. And since it's like connected to the Alan Wake universe, I'm really interested in it. That's really cool. Um, for this episode, we planned something different because last episode we asked people to send us emails to tell us about their first video game experience. And um, we did receive no emails whatsoever, <laughs> which, is, which, which, which was to be expected, but totally no, fine. No, we actually expected that. Yeah. But what we totally did is we just asked some friends for their first video game experience because we really had interest in that. And I got two really cool responses that I'm going to read to you. The first the first one was, um, of someone with their first video game experience, was one of the games that I still remember a lot more than others is Chibi Wobo. And that's because it scared the shit out of me back when I was like seven years old. <laughs> Never actually finished it back then because of this 
this game had some enemies that come up around mid to late game. And the first time they, sh they show up, I freaked out so hard, I screamed and turned off my GameCube. Scary shit for me back then. It took me many years to finish the game. Only finished it this year when I finally went back to it. That has to be our friend Ruby. That has to be Ruby. <laughs> it absolutely is, yeah. <laughs> and the next one is, my story is kind of boring, actually, they say. In late 1987, when I was two, my parents bought the original NES action set, which came with Super Mario Bros. and Duck Hunt. I was a troublesome child. They discovered sitting me in front of the TV with Super Mario and got me to quiet down for hours. I loved video games, totally. But I question, as we as human race continue our evolved relationship with silicon, how do we improve our relationships with one another? In the 90s in America, we did not talk about mental health or feelings. It was not cool. I think the shift towards addressing mental health issues is a step towards fixing some of these community issues we have. Anyway, there you go. Now I'm still pretty good at Super Mario Brothers because I played the heck out of it as a kid. Not quite Kaizo good, but pretty good. Thank you so much for, uh, for telling, telling those stories and sharing that with us. Much, very much appreciated. So, <clears throat> well, with that... Uh, if you're interested in reaching out to us and you do want to send us an email, you can send us an email to codexrexpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at codexrexpodcast, and we do put things on our Twitter. And if you want to find me uh, when I'm not on vacation, I stream three nights a week, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Saturdays on Twitch, and I am Vegan Tyler. Tyler's never on vacation, so that usually... He was on vacation once just now, but then... He'll probably never go on vacation again. <laughs> Every time I go on vacation, something horrible happens to me. I don't know why. I don't know why I'm cursed. Just stop <laughs> doing it. Yeah, just just never leave your house. Did we miss right. anything or can we stop? I think that's it. Let's awesome. let's do this shit. Let's do this. Ready? Yeah, what do you got? All right. Docs, I want you to think way, way back. All the way back. Like two years. Very. What's that? <laughs> like two years? Or how long? Like, yeah, like a year and a half ago to okay. the very first episode of the podcast. Oh, shit. The very first one. So all the way back in the very first episode of the podcast, we talked about Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic. Sonic. Why did we pick Sonic? Because I needed a place to start our podcast, and I was like, shit, I love Sonic. We'll do a Sonic episode. Yeah, it's like and one then, of your favorite games, right? Yeah. Oh, so top of my list, Sonic 3 and Knuckles, and I talked mm -hmm. about that in, in that, as, um, that episode as well. So in that episode, we talked about how the Japanese gaming company Sega broke into the, Ameri uh, the American market that had once been previously dominated by Atari and then was dominated by Nintendo. And... Um, when Sega did this, which we'll talk about here in a moment, it started what they called the they called them the console wars. 
So these console wars of like the late 80s and the early 90s. And there's even been books written about the console wars and a, a recent documentary that was made a couple of years ago. And so we're going to pick up today on some of that story where we left off. And don't worry, I'll give you a little bit of a recap first. Though our focus this time won't be about necessarily about Sonic. It will mostly be about the company itself and their, uh, their next console that they worked on. So we're going to have some recurring characters. And uh, I'm going to mention a couple. We talked about both of them in, in the very first episode. And the first is Hayao Nakayama who is the CEO and president of Sega Japan. We've, we've had his name before. I, I know this name. He showed up. Yeah, he showed up more yeah. than once. And we're also going to talk about a guy, Tom Kalinske. And Tom Kalinske uh, was the pre president of Sega of America at the time. And now a little bit before Tom joined Sega, he was well known in the toy industry for revitalizing some big name like toy brands, including Hot Wheels and Barbie and he was the guy who presided over the launch of Masters of the Universe. Do you know Masters of the Universe, Docs? I do, yeah. yeah. He-Man! Da-da-da-da! It but, kind of weirded me out as a kid, but... <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> but about video games. So he joined up with Sega. He, he, he became the president of Sega America. And Sega is split in, in mainly into... You know, they have branches, but the two branches that we're going to talk about are Sega America and Sega Japan. <laughs> and so Tom... Uh, Tom Kalinske, he was the one who figured out how to crack into the U.S. market, basically to succinctly summarize the first episode by bundling Sonic the Hedgehog with the Genesis and heavily dropping the price of the console. He's also the guy who was responsible for all of the crazy 90s Sega advertising that was like super in your face. And so we'll talk about a whole bunch of people as we go through this, and but we're mostly going to be talking about Sega as a company and their internal conflict. And Tom Kalinske and Hayao Nakayama will show up. They're probably the closest to our coherent thread. Cool. Also, before I get into this, I just wanted to say, as always, some of these events were a little hard to place chronologically. So just note, like, there might be some very light order differences here than than, than real life. It's kind of hard to tell when a certain person had a conversation or, but, you know. I, I placed them as well as I could. It's always tough to figure these things out because that's not how they are written down, right? People right. people don't write things in chronological order so some podcaster can make a perfect timeline. <laughs> exactly, right? Like I'll be reading a book and they'll say, and the launch was terrible, but let's go back three years. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we, we do have to do a lot of guessing on the timeline. Do. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so again, so to those of you who listened to the first episode of the podcast, right, you might remember that Sega was originally very famous for making killer arcade machines. They were awesome at the arcade scene. And so when they entered the console market, they did very well. And uh, they were having trouble selling consoles outside of Japan, though. And that was until the creation of Sonic the Hedgehog. Sonic was specifically designed to give uh, a, them a competitive edge in the American market to make a uniquely American mascot. And so with this power and with the power of the Genesis in the early 90s, Sega put a large dent in Nintendo's market dominance and saw a 50% increase in sales. But given their costs, they weren't really making much of a profit. And so where we're going to pick back up is when the Genesis had been out for about three years and Sega started plotting their next move. Cool. Now, other consoles had started hitting the market around this time. This is the early 90s, like 1990, 1991, that had a much higher processing power than their console, and they wanted to compete. So when the SNES came out, 
it had the ability to do this quasi 3D effect that they called Mode 7. And it was called Mode 7 because it had eight different modes in which it could display background layers. And the last one could be scaled and rotated. And what this meant was that it gave the appearance, like you, it was 2D, but you could give the appearance of things being in 3D even if it wasn't. And so imagine that you're playing a racing game, right? You're playing a racing game and the graphics like, it's like this weird quasi 3D because what's happening in the background is it's being scaled up and down to give the appearance of 3D and it looks really cool. And so you might imagine that this was really cool tech at the time. And so every game that could use it pretty much did, even if it was just on the title screen and it was just all the rage. So like most of the Mario games that came out around that time, Super Metroid, all those Final Fantasies on the SNES, Chrono Trigger, the list goes on and on. So why am I telling you about this? Because Sega wanted in on that. And this is the theme that you'll see throughout this episode is that Sega will frequently look to their competitors and go, we want to do that too. So they're not just going to let Nintendo have this sweet tech and they can't have it. So they look at the Genesis and they're like, well, the Genesis can't really do that. So they send their engineers to figure out what would be needed to use this new tech. So in 1991, and I briefly mentioned this in the, in the first episode, in 1991, they released an add-on to the Genesis called the Sega CD, or the Mega CD, depending on where you lived, which allowed you to play games on discs. Revolutionary. <laughs> and it actually kind of was at the time. Yeah. And so it made all kinds of improvements to the Genesis tech. It could scale sprites. It had more colors. And because it was using CDs, there was tons of storage. Basically, you took your Genesis console and it fitted into a larger add-on, which I will show you right now, Docs. Yeah, and one of the things with CD was that I remember from something is that they are hyper cheap to produce. They in, are. Com- in comparison to cartridges. Yeah, I think, and I wouldn't totally quote me on this, but I seem to remember reading something that around that time to produce a cartridge cost a company like $10, yeah. which is crazy overhead. Okay, this thing that you showed me just looks like, I, I don't know, like a sandwich toaster. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so to those of you who cannot see this, imagine that a Sega Genesis is like literally just like a flat black box with some buttons on the front and a spot that you'd like put a cartridge into on the top. And what's going on on the right here is that you'd place it on top and you'd plug it into this larger machine that added on like a CD. It's like the most voice of sandwich toasters. <laughs> so, okay. So now that you've seen this, um, so interesting side note about the Sega CD. While they were developing it, they actually worked with a little company you might have heard of called Sony. Yeah. At this time, Sony had a division called Sony ImageSoft that was making games for the Sega CD. And Tom Kalinske said that uh, Sega and Sony had a great relationship. So here's an excerpt from an article about it. And this is a little chopped up, but I'm going to read it. The first discussions of that partnership dated back to the days of the Genesis, Kalinske said. During Sega's development of the Sega CD, quote, one of our strongest partners in developing for that platform was Sony, he said. There really was this wonderful collaborative effort, he said, 
We each benefited from each other's work, and I think that's one of the things that has been forgotten in the video game industry, lore, or history. That this very strong bond existed back then between the two companies. Yeah, um, kind of feels like Sony really benefited from this relationship, if you think of their future. <laughs> I can just imagine Sony guy coming up like, hey, Sega, what up? Um, Sega's like, hey, Sony, what are you doing here? And Sony's <laughs> like, oh, I don't know, just wanted to help you build your console. For no, I have no interest in consoles whatsoever. I'm just interested in assisting you and building all of this technology that I have not much experience with, but you will tell me all about it, right? So it's like, yeah, sure, I can show you how my console works. It's easy. We can both benefit from this relationship, right? Yes, we'll totally both benefit from this relationship. Boy, wait until uh, I read the next few paragraphs of this uh, script. (laughs) 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 So hold on to that thought. We'll come right back to that. (laughs) <laughs> so the <laughs> the add-on dropped the the Sega CD slash Mega CD in 1991 in Japan and 1992 in the U.S. and it sold for around three hundred dollars. It was a major upgrade for the Genesis, but the cost was pretty high. You could buy a new console for cheaper than that if you really think about it. Like there weren't really many consoles back then that you could get that cost more than three hundred dollars. And so the release of this add-on had a bit of a mixed response. In its first year in Japan, it sold 100,000 units, which is great for an add-on, but it was still way below what Sega wanted. Consumers weren't thrilled about the price, and at launch, there were only two games available for it. Long story there, but uh, it mostly had to do with how, like, we've kind of touched on this in previous episodes, but Sega is kind of weird about how they give out their software development kits, and so it's also like kind of hard to develop on like Sega hardware. So I think we talked about this in the EA episode. Uh, Sega was like really notorious on how they'd license out their tech. And so um, if you remember, Trip Hawkins <laughs> basically engaged in some corporate espionage there um, to get a better deal. So with the Sega CD, it did better in the US and European markets, but even still, There were complaints that it relied too hard on um, games with FMV, or full motion video, which is basically just recordings of live people or things. Mm -hmm. And so generally, it kind of had unfavorable reviews. And so we'll talk about the Sega CD like a little bit off and on throughout the episode. But I just wanted to mention it because it was pretty cool at the time, but it was in a weird spot. And it was Sega's first dip into messing around with CD technology. Do note that in 1993, they did release an upgraded version of It Was Better, but it was kind of a niche thing. Fun fact, young Tyler had a Sega CD. I thought it was the coolest thing in the universe. I had two games for it. (laughs) Uh, Sewer Shark, which is the game that it came with, which was like, if I remember correctly, was this game about like, flying the ship through sewers and you're like shooting radioactive rats or something i don't know i I was really was bad at it sounds really cool and then i bought sonic cd which is a seriously good sonic game for the time that also uses some of that like quasi 3d tech my particular unit i still have it and it's covered in sonic stickers from this old promotion that they were doing where they were um have you ever heard of the the snack cracker jacks 
Uh, I heard the name, but I don't know what it is. Okay, so imagine that there are... Uh, it's like popcorn with this sort of like toffee flavor on top of it and like nuts mixed in. And then um, they would sell it and mainly market it to children and or sports fans. And they would usually put like some like completely tiny, almost worthless prize in the box. Like it like it sounds so it, American that makes my molars rot. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Um, like in the early days of Cracker Jacks, like they'd give away like little like metal toys and stuff. And then it eventually became like, you know, finger puppets. And then like I so they were doing a promotion when I was a young child that had Sonic stickers in Cracker Jack boxes. And so my grandmother knew I love Sonic and she bought me all these Cracker Jacks <laughs> and I opened them up and got all these Sonic stickers and stuck them all over my Sega CD because like I was going to make sure everybody knew that I played Sonic on it. Yeah. So, Nice. Well, I'm, anyway, I'm not even sure if my unit works anymore. It still exists, but <laughs> awesome. back to our story. So Sega and Sony have this relationship and people from Sega start floating some ideas to Sony. And people from Sony start floating some ideas to Sega. And the talk was, hey, what if we made some hardware together? Sony was on board, partially because, as you kind of mentioned, they were really new in the market. And Kalinsky, he's in on this shit. He's like, we should partner with Sony. And so he starts talking to executives in Japan. And he proposes a partnership. What if Sony and Sega made a console together? The proposal was that they would make a unit together. Like they'd make a console together. And then they would both share the losses that selling hardware would bring. Then they would both combine their advertising and marketing budgets. And then they would share all profits from sales. So think about this. Sony and Sega, both businesses, take the both of their advertising budgets and all of their R&D budgets toward this thing. And they make the super console between these two companies and then they share the profits. I feel like Sega is not getting the best part of this deal still. <laughs> well, as you might imagine, this was very lucrative to Sony because Sega had an awesome background in software and Sony was just starting to learn that market. But what Sony did have was a ton of marketing and development talent and also shit tons of money. They basically own the music market. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, but mostly, like, well, a lot of their stuff comes from um, just the electronic sales that they do. Yeah. So basically, uh, Kalinsky goes to talk to the executives in Japan, and he is like, we should do this. And he reminds them that Nintendo had something big on the horizon and that they actually might have more to gain from the relationship than Sony would. And they could form an alliance. They could take down Nintendo together. Now, as we know <laughs> through history, the executives immediately shot this down. Why would they want to share? If they kept everything in-house and they made their own system, they don't have to work with anybody else. They could keep all the money. They could keep all the revenue. Why split it with, why split it with Sony? Yeah. And the idea was tabled. But for a very brief, fleeting moment, there was al almost a partnership of absolutely epic proportions between these two giants of industry. There's an alternate universe where there's this super console that never had to be replaced because it could do everything and everybody's happy. World peace has been achieved. 
children <laughs> laughing in the streets. They're um, running with their their Sony Sega Playstations. Sonic and Crash Bandicoot crossovers, shit like that. So better, better we, world. We almost had it. So close. <laughs> yes. But we know that around sometime, um, sometime in 1992, Sega starts working on a console behind the scenes. They had given it the code name Saturn. The intention of the console was to essentially bring an arcade experience to home consoles. Now, remember, I mentioned that Sega really had captured the arcade market. And so they wanted to bring this arcade experience to your home. So how are they going to make this? There there are R&Ds talking about it and they think, well, what if we made it into another cartridge console? And they're like, hmm. I don't know. Maybe we should make it into a CD console. And then for a time they said, fuck it. Let's do both. Let's do cartridges and consoles. And they were like, well, uh, no, that probably doesn't work. So let's just stick with CDs. (laughs) (laughs) So they decide on CDs. I don't even know if this, this, if this might've been the idea of some, some higher up and it goes to the engineer. like, We can just do both. And the engineers just look at each other like, (laughs) No, that won't work. But maybe we can do both. Hmm. Um, no. <laughs> I did. I made the designs in my office. See, so you put the cartridges in on the sides, and then you put the CD down vertically from the top. I've been thinking about this for a very long time. <laughs> it's just like a really bad sketch. And on a, on thank, nap, thank you, thank you, Stephen. We really appreciate your napkin that you've given us. Thank you. R&D will take this into account. Yes, thank you so much. We Thank you. Thank you oh. for signing our paychecks. We'll see oh. what we can do. Always be nice to your employers. Yes. <laughs> yes. Someone had to have some tact there. But they decided to use CDs, right? They did. And as you mentioned earlier, making cartridges was really expensive. CDs have a, a ton more storage space. And also, as I mentioned, Sega had already started working with CDs, so they had some of that tech already. Sweet. Now, in 1993, there was a bit of a slump in the video game market. And people in the industry started freaking out a bit. And there was this scare that maybe home video games were on the way out. Our, and arcades started shutting down too. Like, just there just wasn't as much... Like video games were there and they existed, but they weren't selling as well as they did in this in this little slump that happened. And companies started going out of business. They started getting bought by other companies. And in 1993, Sega's earnings dropped 64%. Nintendo's comparatively dropped 40%. But Nintendo was still chugging along because they had no debt, money in the bank, and were still considered to hold around 70% of the world's video game market. That's a lot. Yeah. Sega, conversely, was $700 million in debt and only controlled around 25% of the market. Now, as the years went on, the biggest companies that took, or rather the companies that took the biggest hits with these slumps were Atari and 3DO, but we've already talked about them in previous episodes. But even in this slump, Sega still needed to prepare for the impending launch of a new console. And so they started restructuring their internal personnel to make sure that there would be games ready when the Saturn would launch. So they start moving people away from development arcade games, something that they had excelled at for years, and they put a bunch of developers toward creating new 3D games. Now, around this time, the Japanese company Hitachi partners with Sega to develop a new CPU for their console. 
Hitachi ends up creating something called the Super H R I S C engine, or what they called the SH2 when they finished their final version of it. This is the chip that most of the architecture of the Saturn is based around. But as development was nearing completion, they started hearing rumors of a little company you might have heard of named Sony. And a console that they had been building called the PlayStation. And the rumors were that it was very powerful. And so this prompted Sega to add a secondary video processor into the Saturn in order to try and keep up with Sony. I never knew, like we had this in several episodes, how afraid the the Sony competitors were of the PlayStation. Oh, yeah. And I just imagine panicking scientists running through laboratories. Oh no, it's coming. The prophecy is being fulfilled. We've got a containment breach. The PlayStation is coming. Have you heard? Have you heard? It's the Sony Sony executives have sacrificed another child on their dark altar. They call the PlayStation. It spits fire and it has gnashing teeth and it's going to eat our money. Not our money. Not our yachts. How will we buy sports cars to drive to the hotel from the airport? (laughs) Total side note, Sega fucking loved to spend money in the 90s. Loved to spend money. I've mentioned it like off and on throughout the episodes, but like I remember reading something in a book about how uh, if there was a developer that they were flying in and they were going to rent them a car to get from the airport and, you know, they're bringing in four guys all four guys would be given like a, a like a, a really high end sports car to basically drive to the hotel because they just they you know they wanted to make a flashy show of what they had even if maybe they didn't have as much money as the other companies. Nice, uh, really. That's uh, I don't know. <laughs> fuck him, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck him. <laughs> fuck poor children. Fuck all, <laughs> fuck all the competitors. Let's buy sports cars for a day. <laughs> 5 a.m. docs is spicy. <laughs> <laughs> fuck them. Fuck poor children. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So. <laughs> so they're looking to the PlayStation and they're scared. And this is a theme that you will run into pretty much forever. Um, now, what was weird here? is that Sega was making this 32-bit system, uh, and in an era in which 3D was starting to become a thing, they actually wanted to make a really killer platform for 2D games. And what's strange about that is that Sega already had this very large presence in the arcade scene, and and games like Virtua Fighter and Daytona USA were becoming very popular and and utilizing 3D. So around this time, a company called Silicon Graphics decided that they might want to strike up a deal with Sega. So if you've heard this name before, you've rather, you've probably heard this name before, but if you don't know the company, they made a lot of the computer systems and tech that was used in the nineties, particularly on movie sets when they needed to render things. So like Jurassic Park, for example, had special effects that were rendered on Silicon graphics workstations. Hmm. And Silicon graphics was considered to be basically top of the line tech. So the CEO of Silicon graphics sees that video games are taking off and he, he he sees that they're the future. And so he tasks his engineers with making something that could be put into upcoming consoles. 
And what they came up with was a chipset that was high end, but also low cost. And so the CEO of Silicon Graphics approaches Tom Kalinske and pitches it to him. What if Silicon Graphics puts their chips in the upcoming console that Sega's making? Yet again, Kalinske is in. He's like, fuck yeah, let's do this. That's not a direct quote. (laughs) (laughs) He sees what they're bringing to the table. He knows that they're, you know, top of the line. He calls up Sega Japan and Sega Japan sends over some engineers. So they fly out a bunch of people and the engineers look over what Silicon Graphics is offering and they kind of rip it apart. They essentially said that the chips were too big and that uh, they were pricey to manufacture. The audio quality wasn't great. They needed some work. So Silicon Graphics takes this criticism and they go back to the drawing board. They throw a whole bunch of money at it. They improve their chips. Yet again, Kalinsky calls Japan. Sega sends over engineers. They look over the chips. They turn them down on the offer. Kalinsky is not thrilled. And he tells the guys from Silicon Graphics in a nice way. He's like letting them down easy. Hey, man, you know, this and this is a direct quote, but this is pretty close to what he said. Something to the effect of, well, there's other gaming companies out there. I guess there's other gaming companies out there. Something to that effect. Like, well, you know, there's all, there'll always be another one, right? Now, <laughs> creating this tech isn't exactly cheap. So they took his advice. And they sold their tech to, to so Nintendo. Ni- oh, to Nintendo. To Nintendo, which is the basis of what th- that that basis, the Silicon Graphics chips, are what was eventually used to make the Nintendo 64. So in turning down Silicon Graphics, they gave this tech to their greatest and most hated rival. So twice now, there co- things that have come to them, they've turned down that have gone to their competitors. Yeah. Um. So what we learned from this is i mean sega's the, sega we we don't know about sega's future right and it will be a grand and wonderful future for them because turning yes. down innovation is how you progress of course because of course. because we know that nintendo and sony fail and sega is the only video game console still remaining on the market in our yeah, alternate we don't even timeline need to do we don't even need to do episodes on on the PlayStation and the N sixty four. They're fucking gone, man. Yeah. Yeah, and you thought the you thought the Atari Jaguar was a flash in the pan. You fucking wait till you hear about the N- the Nintendo sixty four. Yeah. <laughs> hey, side note. Uh, I saw a real deal. I was just up in Seattle visiting some friends. Uh, some of our friends who listen to this podcast. Hey, thanks for letting me stay at your house. Total shout out. Um, and we went to a store where I saw in person a Jaguar CD. So Atari Jaguar had a very small limited run of a CD add-on, and I saw it in a store in person. I'd never seen one before. What's the price tag on it? $900. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) So I didn't buy it. (laughs) Too rich for my blood. (laughs) I can't afford the Atari Jaguar. I guess, I guess it's in collector's object, right? Yeah, that would really be the, the allure of that point. So <laughs> so anyway. Okay, so see, Sega's in a weird spot. Okay, so they're working on this console. And they're trying to make things that appeal to two very different markets. In the U.S., the Genesis had sold very well. But the Genesis did not perform nearly as well in the Japanese market. So they tasked their team in Japan 
with moving forward with the new console, but they weren't quite sure what to do about the U.S. market. So they had taken this large share of revenue from Nintendo and they wanted to keep it. But how do you do that? Would people in the U.S. want to buy a Saturn? It was hard to say. You might want to keep leaning into the Genesis, which had given them this early edge. But you can't milk the Genesis forever. So two different markets and what people wanted in Japan in the video game market at the time might not necessarily be in the aggregate what was wanted in the U.S. So the story goes that knowing this, Sega Japan had an idea for a console that would be more appealing to the American market. They bring the console specs to a meeting with the higher-ups at Sega America, and they give them a presentation. So when I say a console, I'm not talking about the Saturn. I'm talking about something else, okay? Yeah. Here's a quote from Michael Lathan, I hope I said his name right, who was the executive producer at Sega of America about the meeting. <clears throat> quote, we were told there was going to be a thing called the Genesis 2. It was going to be another version of Genesis, an entire system. The only difference was that it was going to have double the colors and a lower cost. So Joe Miller said, oh, that's just a horrible idea. <laughs> if all you're going to do is enhance the system, then you should make it an add-on. He went on to say, if it's a new system with legitimate new software, great. But if the only thing it does is double the colors... He trailed off, right? Now, Joe Miller in that quote was the head of a Sega of America's research and development, and he was strongly against releasing the Genesis 2, like, you know, basically just a new color palette that you'd pay for. Yeah, why would you put out another iteration of a console just to make more money off of something that you've already created? It's ridiculous. Well, I, mean, <laughs> I mean, have you ever heard of a video game uh, series called Madden? What? Yeah, there's also one called FIFA. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of those. I don't know. I think seems, they follow seems, that concept. Seems ridiculous. Probably didn't make it past the second iteration. <laughs> I'm mad about Madden, <laughs> you'd say. Oh, that was terrible. I'm so sorry. Okay, so. <laughs> Sega Japan. Sega Japan. Okay, so they take this feedback and Sega Japan takes this into account. And so they start to talk and somewhere along the way, Someone has an idea that, as mentioned by Joe Miller, that it would become an add-on to the Genesis. They just love add-ons, don't they? And so they decide that they're going to take the tech from, this, uh, from the original console idea that they had, the Genesis 2, and they're going to upgrade it. They're going to make it more powerful. They're going to add in a bunch of new chips and uh, technical upgrades. They're going to increase the specifications. But no matter what, there was a strong refusal on the U.S. side to turn it into a separate system. Now, either way, it wasn't really a good place to be in. And uh, Lathan, who I mentioned earlier, describes Joe Miller, the head of R&D, as like basically making a, the best choice in a bad situation. So it's going to be this add-on. We've already got add-ons. We've got the Sega CD and we've got other stuff too. <clears throat> now there's going to be this new add-on. So they pitched this add-on idea to Hayao Nakayama. Sega of Japan's president. And Nakayama was starting to see competitors at the gates. Not only was the PlayStation on the horizon, but he was especially concerned about what a company called Atari had been working on, a system called the Atari Jaguar. <laughs> he realizes, <laughs> you're laughing, but he wasn't at the time. <laughs> 
he realizes that the Saturn needed more development time and it, that it likely wouldn't be out in the U.S. market by the end of 1994. So they needed some kind of a release to stay relevant on the market. And so he approves this add-on specifically as a way to maybe a f- like fight Atari in the U.S. market. And he tells them they need to have it done by the end of 1994. It was January. Yeah, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we already talked about the Saturn. The Saturn's not out yet. Hold on to that. They start a pro- something called Project Mars for this add-on. But most of you who have heard of it would know it as the 32X or some variant thereof when it hit the market. So like the Super 32X in Japan, the Genesis 32X in the US, the Mega Drive 32X in Europe, et cetera, et cetera. There's like a whole bunch of versions of it. The idea was is that it would be a cheaper alternative to those who were struggling to afford entry into this new 32-bit market. Sega claimed that it would make the Genesis 40 times faster. It could render 50,000 polygons at a second and it could render 3D graphics. It basically made the Genesis a powerhouse. So you've got this console that's beginning to age heavily and all this new tech's out, and they're going to create this add-on for current owners of the Genesis to upgrade their console. Sounds like a great idea, right? Actually, it sounds pretty good. because It does, actually. <clears throat> then you'd be like, I can just buy this add-on and I don't have to get into this bullshit of new consoles releasing. Right. So we'll we'll talk about the merits or... Well, you'll see. <laughs> the, I, so, I, I see a problem already, and that is you, you won't get any of the new games. Well, you'll see. <laughs> I mean, there are issues here, and they will become apparent very quickly. So Sega starts pushing this new add-on to third-party developers. They want people to develop for the 32X, but it was a really hard sell because the big-name developers already knew what was coming out in the future. Nintendo was working on something big, the Ultra 64, which we now know as the Nintendo 64. Sony had a new console coming out in 1995, and anybody who had seen its tech was blowing away. Like, they were blown away with what it could do. So people who knew their tech knew that the 32X wouldn't be able to keep up with what the later systems would accomplish, They knew it was basically just a half measure to appeal to people who already had a Genesis. So why would they put development time into it? And one of the biggest issues with development of the add-on was that Sega themselves already had a console in the works. So why would outside developers want to put time into developing for both? Further, journalists weren't exactly thrilled at the idea that Sega would split its own market. Right? They'd split their own player base between an add-on to an old console and then a brand new console. And there were multiple articles about how this just really didn't sit well in the gaming community, and they couldn't understand the strategy. Dude, today journalists would go wild for that. They'd be like, wow, this is such a respectful move towards mm. the old gamers to not abandon the old technology. I could see yeah, I could see that. They did not think of it like that back then. So Sega, have a, uh, Sega decides that they're going to do some damage control. Okay, Sega of America. And they decide that they want to win these journalists over, right? Okay, so if there's people reporting on video games and they're they're a voice of the video game community and they're going to write these articles for um, these big name gaming magazines, then you want them to have a favorable impression of your console. So how do you do that? Well, as I've told you, Sega in the 90s loved to spend money. 
And so <clears throat> they want to generate some good press about their upcoming add-on. Their solution, throw a huge fucking party in San Francisco at a dance club. So they rent out this dance club and Sega pays to fly in journalists from all over the world. And they put them up for free in a hotel that is beside Sega's headquarters. So the night of the party, they pay for a bunch of buses to take these journalists from the hotel across San Francisco to a club. Again, this totally fits with Sega's idea of how to win people over in the 90s. Throw money at it, right? Throw money at it if it makes you look good or it brings you talent. They get all of these reporters in a club for a big party. All right, it's a huge fucking party. And Tom Kalinske shows up and he gives this pretty standard speech about how great the 32X is going to be. And then immediately following the speech, they've got a big fucking surprise. They hired a local rapper to come out and do a very lengthy rap about how awesome the 32X was going to be. So apparently, if that doesn't make you cringe enough, the music was so loud that nobody in the club could talk to each other. And so during this time, they're playing this crazy loud music. The rapper comes out. He's rapping about the 32X. And then they have this big dance party. And they put the 32X consoles in the club with this crazy loud music. So these games are supposed to showcase how great this add-on is going to be. But they were so unimpressive that the machines just sat there being unplayed. Like the whole yeah. point was that they were supposed to show up and look at these consoles and like no one played them. And so what ended up happening was that most of the journalists just hung out in the lobby and just ignored the whole thing. And some of them got so bored with this 32X presentation that they tried to leave. And when they tried to leave, they found out that the buses that Sega had sent over from the hotel had left they stranded journalists from all over the world at a lengthy party and forced them to stay for the entire thing. It was a complete PR blunder from start to finish. Needless so to say, I guess it did they not got, work. They got massacred. Uh, <laughs> got massacred. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> why, why did you think this is a good idea? Why? I don't know. <clears throat> okay, so... <laughs> Even though journalists were not into this add-on, retailers went nuts for it, and they put in huge orders. It was to the point that Sega couldn't keep up with demand. But with two releases coming up, there were questions. If the 32X allowed the Genesis to play games that were in 32-bit, could someone theoretically buy a Sega CD add-on? and the 32X and have a Genesis that could play Saturn games? Sega refused to give a straight answer. Probably because the answer was no. <laughs> well, <clears throat> for that, let's ask the head of 3DO company, Trip Hawkins. He used it as an opportunity to attack his competitors. In an interview, he said, quote, Everyone knows that 32X is a band-aid. It's not a next-generation system. It's fairly expensive. It's not particularly high performance. It's hard to program for, and it is not compatible with the Saturn. Sega was pissed. And several executives spoke publicly about how Trip Hawkins had no idea what he was talking about. And then in the same conferences, they would get asked if you did this, if you could play Saturn games, and they refused to say one way or another. And as you might have guessed, Trip Hawkins was right. 
the 32X was not powerful enough to run software that had been created for the Saturn. Though, Sega glossed this over by saying, oh, well, the 32X and the Saturn do use the same architecture, so... Like, I guess that was a selling point? I don't know. I feel like Trip didn't know this, but he's a good good enough of a businessman to to see, to have insight on, on other companies and be like, why are they not telling this? They are not telling this because they can't. I'm going to tell it publicly to other people and they will have to defend themselves and they will look like idiots. <laughs> Trip was always really good at sniffing out his opponent's weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, I imagine having him as an enemy must have been frightening. <laughs> Let us hope that you and I never draw the ire of Overlord Trip Hawkins. <laughs> May his baleful gaze never turn upon us. <laughs> Trip Hawkins, <laughs> so suave, so debonair. Yeah, I sacrifice at the trip at my trip shrine every night just to make sure that he doesn't get angry with me. As you should. I uh, I like to hum the words 3DO to myself um, throughout the day to remember uh, who got us here. Yes, I sacrifice a lamb, but that's fine too, I guess. Well, you know, I'm vegan, so it's a little harder for me to do that. <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, everybody. <laughs> we, we, you know, we all sacrifice in our own way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so. The 32X hits the market November 21st, 1994. So they made their goal, right? Out by the end of the year, it cost $159. And the public wasn't really interested. And one reason that the public wasn't really interested was because there were only six games available for it at launch, and most of them were terrible. Apparently, Doom and Virtua Racer were the standout titles, There was a game called Cosmic Carnage that was so bad that reporters could not stop cracking jokes about it. (laughs) Apparently, they had been so pressed to get games out, it's such a small time frame that everything that hit the market was very rushed. So as you might imagine, sales of the 32X were pretty bad. After a few months, the 32X dropped to $159, I'm sorry, from $159 to $99. And then, this is a bit of a spoiler, but some stores ended up having so much uh, 32X stock that they couldn't get rid of it, and they started selling it on clearance for like 20 bucks. It was not the hot item that Sega had said it would be. And this is going to be important in a moment. Yeah. Now, a single day after the 32X releases in the US on November 22nd, the Sega Saturn releases in Japan. In Japan, the hype leading up to the Sega Saturn's release was immense. Sega had seen what Sony was doing with the PlayStation and had pivoted toward a more 3D-ready console. So I mentioned earlier they were trying to do a 2D thing. They pivot to a 3D thing. And when it dropped, Sega had already made 200,000 consoles available at launch, each selling for the price of 44,800 yen, or converted at the time, was roughly around $469. When it released in Japan, most of that stock was already sold out in advance through pre-orders. Those that weren't sold out already had lines out the stores for days waiting beforehand. Supply was nowhere enough to meet fervent demand. They ended up selling close to 500,000 Saturn units in the first month of being on the market, and that was just in Japan. It didn't even come bundled with a game. 
it didn't even have a game. So the most popular game that did release for the time, uh, like for the console at launch, was Virtua Fighter, which retailed at around eighty dollars after the currency conversion. That game was also a hit, and it had it sold almost a one to one rate of Virtua Fighter per console. Wow, um, I don't know Virtua Fighter. Is it like any kind of fighting game where you punch each other and you have health bars and you want the other health bar to go down? Yep, that's exactly okay. it. Cool. It was it was a famous arcade game at the time, and so to be able to play that at home was kind of a big deal. Cool. If I remember the story correctly. <laughs> yep. So, okay. Less than two weeks later, on December 3rd, the Sony PlayStation hits the Japanese market. Their initial release did all right, but Sega had plans already to try and beat their new competitor. They waited until the day that the PlayStation released to ship more Saturns to stores. So, like, stores had been basically asking for more Saturns. We need more Saturns. We have to sell more Saturns. And they held shipments until the very day that the PlayStation came out so that the shelf space for Saturns would not be empty. And this meant that consoles would be displayed side by side. And their hope was that customers would walk in to get a new console and they would see the Saturn, they'd know Sega as a company, and they'd be less likely to gamble on Sony. And when the two were placed side by side, they were right. Consumers in Japan preferred the Sega Saturn in the Japanese market, at least on the early release. Now, at some point, Sega realizes that the 32X, which is mostly hitting in the American market, is not working out so well. So they have this idea. They're going to combine the Genesis and the 32X into a single system. And they start working on a prototype. They announced to the public they're going to make a new combined console that would cost $150. They called it the Neptune. Oh, okay. I was just yeah. going to make a suggestion how it might have been called. But I'm, I was ahead. wrong. It's not Neptune. Well, it's not Neptune. They called it Neptune internally. Oh, is it just, I think, because they cast two things together and it was kind of their dream? Will it be the Dreamcast? No. We'll talk about the Dreamcast at the end of this episode. It's okay. not the Dreamcast. But it was never released. So by the time the prototype was made, they so they announced to the world that we're making the Neptune. But by the time that they actually got the prototype, they realized it would be released a year after they had planned to release the Saturn. And so there wasn't really a use for it. So mm -hmm. they scrapped the project and they left okay. things as they were. Now, Trip Hawkins, CEO of 3DO <laughs> Company, of course, loved to talk shit. Quote, Sega is sending a very confusing message to the consumer saying, buy Genesis. Now it's Game Gear. No, actually, it's Sega CD. No, it's 32X. Wait, wait, wait. Forget all that stuff. It's Saturn. Maybe it's Titan. How about Pico? I wonder if he was as mean after he got betrayed by EA. <laughs> well, if this That's was a good question well, if this was before that and he was still like smug all the i'm the smartest guy in the world i can tell everyone what to do and then he gets stabbed in the back and he gets all small and silent <laughs> i actually think if i have this timeline right this would be post ea backstabbing i think but remember, that's kind of an event that's a little hard to place on when that occurred. But this is later into the life of the 3DO, I think, by this point. So I would think it would be post-backstabbing. That can, happened pretty early I on. can imagine that Trip might be resistant to loss of smugness. So um, maybe he just keeps it, whatever happens to him. He always stays a huge asshole. <laughs> 
perhaps. Okay. So he mentioned a couple of things we hadn't talked about. The Titan he was talking about in there was an arcade board that Sega tested for a while. Um, I don't know that it hit the market. And the Pico was a children's educational gaming console. And though, even though Trip is doing like his usual CEO smack talking thing, is he really wrong here? I mean, Sega is really sending a lot of mixed messages about what people should buy, what they should do, where they should put their their purchasing power. Um, and so this is a theme that's that's going to appear as we keep working through this. Yeah, it's unfocused. It, yeah, it's very unfocused. OK, so seeing the success, Sega seeing the success of the Saturn in Japan, they push for a U.S. release. They decide to set the U.S. launch day for the Saturn to be Saturday, September 2nd, 1995. This date will be important in a moment. They started promoting it as Saturn Day, which makes me cringe so fucking hard to hear it. Please, please hire better advertisement people. (laughs) (laughs) We'll call it Saturn Day. Saturn Day. (laughs) <laughs> what do you think we should call it, Tom? Saturn Day. It's because they were drunk while they were discussing it because they were so depressed <laughs> that they were working for Sega and not for Sony. <laughs> I wish that we could work for Sony. I see all their cool tech. I okay. send <laughs> love letters to Trip every day, but he doesn't answer. I'm stuck here forever. <laughs> I heard he just shreds them in his new design of the 3DO. <laughs> Hell isn't the other people. It's Sega. <laughs> Okay, so, but the anticipation was high, especially after how it was performing in Japan. After the Genesis, what was going on with the 32X? People were kind of really excited to see what Sega could be capable of. The console would cost $399, which was pretty high for consoles at the time. Side note here, the reason that this it was kind of a high price was because the Saturn was legitimately expensive to produce. And so for every unit that they sold, it's estimated that Sega lost around $100. So the announcement of a $400 console was pretty realistic given the cost of the internal parts at the time. By all reports, Kalinsky did not like the Saturn. He and the American executives thought that it was too expensive for the American market, and he was once quoted saying that, quote, Saturn will be a price point that will not make it a mass market item in terms of volume and keeping the category exciting. It's Genesis and 32X. So when they had to decide how to spend their advertising budget, they spent it almost entirely on promoting the Genesis and the 32X. So he was convinced that the Saturn wouldn't do well. And so sort of in like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? He's like, we just won't advertise it as much. We're going to advertise the things we think will do well. Yeah. Okay. Plus, I'm sure the gist I got is that he kind of felt burned. Like, we'll talk about this a little bit later, that like every time he had an idea that might have really changed up the company or really changed things up, he got blocked really hard from doing it. Like in in the Sonic episode, he got like they stood up for him and talked about how he knew the market better. But as time went on, it seemed mostly like, you know, Sega Japan was like, we might know the market better and we we, we need, need to do things differently than you want us to. Mm-hmm. So there's this conflict already, yes. right? Okay. So that year, 1995, the Electronic Entertainment Expo, or what would be later called E3, was just kicking off for the very first time in May. 
Sega's president, Tom Kalinske, was invited to speak to give a presentation on the Saturn. They announce that the Saturn will sell for four, you know, $399 or $400 in the United States. Now, Tom is not in a great position that year. The PlayStation had already released in Japan, as had the Saturn, but neither had launched in the United States yet. The PlayStation had started building a lot of hype for a U.S. release sometime in the fall, and Sega was getting nervous. There it is again. As one article put it, quote, The creator of The Walkman, the portable musical device, music device that revolutionized the music industry, was coming after games, and it was serious, end quote. I read some stuff saying that Sony had been capitalizing on the fact that Sega had been releasing this like slew of add-ons for the Genesis and that it was confusing to consumers. And so they advertised hard and so people knew about them and they were actually going to beat Sega to a release date so that the PlayStation was going to come out before the Saturn did in the United States. And Sega of Japan panicked and they decided that they needed to establish a presence for the Saturn in the U.S. market before Sony could that they needed to get in before Sony could start establishing roots. Given all this, what is Kalinske to do? He steps out on stage and tells the world that he has a very special surprise for them. No, it's not a rapper rapping about the 32X. <laughs> the Saturn would not be available at the end of the year. The Saturn, uh, or rather, the Saturn wouldn't be available in September Due to high consumer demand, as he put it, it would be available in May, right then, right there, today. That very day, four months early in select retailers, 30,000 consoles already shipped to the stores, secretly put on shelves, ready and waiting. All people had to do was go out and buy them. They were there. As he put it in a press release, quote, we've decided to bring the product to market earlier than scheduled to meet the high consumer demand to refine our marketing strategy over the summer prior to the important fall season and to get a head start on the competition, end quote. People at the show lost their fucking marbles. The public scrambled to get their hands on one. Sega had just given themselves a four-month head start on the market before the PlayStation could release. They would build and establish this market before Sony even entered it. Sounds fucking great, right? Uh, I just imagine this engineer sitting in the basement. He has like this sandwich in one hand and <laughs> this his soldering iron in the other one. And there's an opened up console in front of him. And he has this Sega logo on his lab coat. And he's just munch munching away and watching the little TV in front of him. And then he hears that sentence. He's like, and 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 he he um, breathes in his sandwich and he can't breathe anymore and he just sits there and from behind comes Dave and does the Heimlich grip and tries to save him but he can't save him and he falls to the ground dying and he's like no the sandwich drops into the open components of a Sega Saturn <laughs> and that's how it gets released that's exactly how it went I'm yeah. I'm glad that you were able to find that out for us yeah I have my sources. Well, please don't reveal them. <laughs> that would compromise our journalistic integrity. It would, yes. Okay, so this sounds fucking awesome, right? Go out and get a console right then, right there. You know who it didn't fucking sound great to? Retailers who are suddenly caught off guard, expecting the release to be several months later. Because they only chose select retailers. The ones that got them had a small number to sell and everybody else didn't get any 
So Sega listed several retailers that would have the Saturn that day. <clears throat> Big ones like Walmart, Toys R Us, Kmart, Electronics Boutique. There was a really big toy store chain uh, back in the U.S. I don't think it exists anymore, and it was called KB Toys. And according to KB Toys, they did not get a partnership on, on they, they didn't show up on the list of retailers. And people inside KB Toys were furious. They had just bought a ton of the 32X, which had been a financial loss to them. They basically had to give it away. And so here's Sega six months later, and they excluded them from early access to the console. So KB Toys makes a decision that was also made by many independent retailers at the time that in retaliation, they would not carry this, the Sega Saturn. They would give shelf space to their competitors instead. So it pissed off just about every place that had been anticipating selling a bunch of Saturns because preferential treatment had been given to a select list. Yeah, right. Also... You go ahead. That's a breach of contract and a breach of trust. And yeah, they deserve to be punished for that. Now, let's say that you are a consumer. You're a person who's been really excited to get yourself a Saturn. Well, guess what? It just came out for, uh, you know, four months early. And if you really wanted one, you get to see other people buying them. But you didn't make it to Kmart or whatever in time. So there wasn't really much of a supply and so then when it sold out, like all the shelf space got taken over by the competitors. And this is, you know, even if um, you managed to get one, the developers who were making games for the console were like, um, hey, wait, you told us that we needed to have this to you in four months and you're telling us that you need it now? Yeah. We're not ready now. Yeah. Came and back so, to the sandwich. <laughs> we got nothing right? to <laughs> Because Sega didn't fucking tell them that they were releasing early either. They wanted it to be this huge, like, fucking mic drop moment. So third-party developers, right? They're expecting all this time to finish their games. Now they don't have it. So some third-party developers were so pissed that this had occurred that they moved their games from the Sega Saturn to the Sony PlayStation. Also, apparently... They, as well as others, had found out that it was just easier to make games for the PS1 because the Saturn used double CPU units and several video processing chips, and the PlayStation had much simpler internal components to work with, and they provided graphics libraries that you could just pull from. So let's say that you're a consumer, right? And you, you do actually manage to get a hold of a Saturn. You had six games to pick from. And only two more were going to come out in the four-month release before the console, like, officially dropped. So if you're an early adopter, you get screwed, too. You have no games to play. So it was just bad all around. Now, here's the real kicker. If you didn't think that this U.S. release was bad, at the same E3 press conference, as soon as Sega is done presenting, they drop this announcement. It's coming out today. It's going to be crazy. Directly after Sega's presentation is Sony's presentation. The head of America, Olaf Olafsson, yes, that is his real name, for real, <laughs> comes out and talks for a few minutes. And then he invites the head of development, Steve Race, to come up and give a, quote, brief presentation. Steve casually walks up and he stands at the podium. He opens his notes, looks down at them, shuffles a few papers, looks directly at the crowd and just says, Two ninety nine. He closes his notes and walks off stage. The whole thing was so fast; it lasted maybe fifteen seconds. The audience 
again, lost their shit. The PlayStation was going to be $100 less than the Saturn, and Sega had no idea what to do. They had been upstaged at their own surprise announcement. This is... face. This is... These people, these... (laughs) These stages and these audiences that go crazy over words, this is Babylon falling. (laughs) What is happening? Like... I, I go on stage and I read from a piece of paper a number and then we all worship the console gods. <laughs> well, I mean, we're living in a we're living in a post E3 era, right? The per, the first E3 came and went and I guess we, civilization didn't fall yet, so not yet. At least we think it didn't. <laughs> Look around yourself. I don't know. Seems pretty apocalyptic to me. <laughs> that was it that was the moment that society fell the first e3 yeah it was the first um the first marker (laughs) historians will will carve will carve obscenities against e3 on rocks after the the world explodes yeah i have studied the crumbling of society due to e3 collapse of the early 21st century uh yes we've read your paper and um it seems pretty solid. It seems pretty solid. This yeah. is good research. Yeah, yeah we are we're all in agreement. Yeah, fuck E3. Fuck them and what they did to us. Yes. They let these maniacal maniacs get up on stage and battle with words. <laughs> the public just lapped it up. Okay, I forgot where we were. What have we been doing? <laughs> okay, so, all right. So, <clears throat> sales of the Saturn, they actually seem fucking awesome at first. Because demand is really high and there's this big stunt, right? And there's like no supply to sell. And so they distribute these 30,000 consoles across the U.S. And then people got onto waiting lists to get one. So the console launched um, with a few games. So Virtua Fighter, Daytona USA, Panzer Dragoon, Worldwide Soccer, and Pebble Beach Golf Links. Some just, of these I've heard of, some of these I haven't. Let's just change some random words together and turn them <laughs> into games. <laughs> Pebble so, Beach words links, what? Pebble Beach golf links. Oh, okay. <laughs> that, that makes it so much better, yes. <laughs> Do you, I think you got an idea what the game's about now, right? Golf on a pebble beach. <laughs> I'll take it. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Sega touts that by September, they would have close to 20 games to play on the Saturn. But even by today's standards, that still seems like kind of low, doesn't it? Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know. 20 games at launch isn't that bad, but that just seemed low to me. Now, did you notice what was missing during that release? What? So... What would you expect Sega to release with their console? Think about Sega in the 90s. What defines Sega in the United States? Mm, like some some Sonic game, right? Right. Where's Sonic? What, what, what happened to Sonic? There was no Sonic game on release day. On the early one or the official one. In fact, Sega never released an original Sonic game for the Saturn. It is a very long story that I think maybe merits its own episode. But there was a Sonic game in development called Sonic Extreme because it was the 90s. It was the 90s, yeah. Just trying to say that. (laughs) 
But it was mired with numerous issues, company infighting, and major illnesses on the development team. And I will get a little bit ahead of myself here, but it wasn't even officially canceled until early 1997. So almost the whole time that the, that the Saturn was on the market, people were holding out this hope that this Sonic game was going to hit that never came. The best that they ever got on the Saturn was a port of Sonic 3D Blast, which was a Sega Genesis game that used this like quasi 3D system on a top down thing. So keep that all in mind as we continue forward. Sega just released a console, having built their entire United States brand on Sonic, and they had no Sonic to give and they never did. I used to, I, so I actually remember this. I had a magazine that showed all these pictures of what Sonic Extreme was going to look like. And I remember thinking like, if this comes out, I'm going to get a Saturn. If this comes out, I have to play Sonic. I have to, because I was obsessed. And it never came. It never materialized. They just stopped talking about it in magazines. Did, you have, these, off the face did of you have these dreams where you would wake up all sweaty and like, oh, it's finally released. I have to get out. I have to get Sonic Extreme. And then you realize it's actually the reality you live in. And there is Mom, no Mom, I was having a dream. I was having a dream about Sonic. And it was extreme. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, honey. It's the same one you have every night. I know, Mom. But it'll be here soon, won't it? Tyler, it's it's, it's 2009. Like, why are you holding on? I, it's coming. I know. It'll be here. It'll be here. Tyler, please move Stop. out of my house. <laughs> Tyler, this is very... <laughs> I wouldn't call this behavior extreme at all. This is so uncool. <laughs> this is so non-extreme. I can't even... <laughs> This is so banal. You might as well call it Sonic boring. <laughs> okay, so no Sonic either. So as the end of 1995 drew closer, it seemed that a lot of the shit talk, you know, all that smack that Trip Hawkins had been saying about the Sega, about Sega as a company, rather, turned out to be true. By the end of the year, by the end of 1995, Sega had seven different systems they were trying to support. The Saturn the Genesis, the Game Gear, the Pico, the Sega CD, the 32X, and the 32X CD. Almost all of these systems were incompatible with each other. There were even rumors that there was still some kind of a small market for the Master System in South America, which was the precursor to the Genesis. There was no way that Sega could put their weight behind all of these systems. Even for a company so large and so expansive, there was a breaking point, and they had hit it. So the president of Sega, Nakayama, has to make a tough decision. He looks to the Japanese market, and he's thinking toward the future. He decides that he is going to put Sega's full weight behind the Saturn at the expense of all other consoles and all other add-ons. Now, to give him credit, this decision makes complete sense to me, especially when you're looking at the Japanese market. There was not much of a market for the Genesis anymore um, in Japan, and the Saturn was already outselling the PlayStation in Japan. So he makes the decision to cut most of the line, including the 32X. Uh, side note, the 32X was discontinued officially the following year, 1996. Back in the United States, issues arose. Tom Kalinske and other management at Sega wanted Sega to keep putting support behind the Genesis and the 32X because they thought that the market was still there. But Sega was again managing this war on many fronts, and the cracks had begun to show. So in Japan... The Saturn was doing great. It had taken up a large share of the gaming market, but in the U.S., the Saturn had become a hard sell. It was $399, and it didn't even come with a game at first. 
Now, remember that back in the day, all the way back in the first episode, we talked about how Kalinsky told Sega of Japan that they needed to lower the price of their consoles to get Americans to buy it, and it worked. But the rumor this time was that the Japanese side of things, uh, like of the company at least, had been starting to force decisions on Sega of America, even though they were kind of different markets. Kalinsky apparently didn't even want to bring the Saturn to the U.S. for a while, but they essentially forced it on him. They were like, you have to. Okay, so the Saturn, with these releases, it does okay in the United States for a while, but developers started speaking about how hard it was to make games for it. The internal architecture was kind of strange, and so a lot of them, just in the aggregate, as I mentioned, just started releasing things on other consoles. By the time that the PlayStation dropped in the United States on September 9th, 1995, it had sucked all of the air out of the room. Two days, two days after the PlayStation dropped, it sold double the number of consoles that the Saturn had sold in five months of being out on the market. Something like 200,000 consoles to Sega's 80,000. Adding more issues to the fire, Sega had among other things, banked heavily on sports games on previous consoles. But Madden 96 didn't have a release on 32-bit consoles, so there wasn't a football game on the Saturn that year. One hope that they had was the release of a game called Knights into Dreams. Have you heard of this game? No, never. Okay. Ever seen a Sega mascot character that looks like a purple jester? I feel like I did. Okay. I feel like you'd recognize it if you saw it. But Probably. It was made by Yuji Naka, who was one of the designers of Sonic the Hedgehog. Oh, okay. Basically, the game is about two children who fly through a dream world called Nightopia. Uh, the book that you and I use, Docs, The Ultimate History of Video Games, talked about how it showed both the good and bad parts of the Saturn because the game was in 3D, but almost all of the gameplay took place in two dimensions. So you have these other consoles like the PlayStation, the N64, they can render this true 3D experience, whereas the Saturn was basically even still more of a 2D console that could use 3D elements. But with the release of Nights into Dreams, they used it as a like a like a time to change up their image a bit. So gone were these screaming in your face crazy commercials that Kalinsky had pushed um, in the early days when they were mostly just squabbling with Nintendo, like these Nintendo attack ads. Um, what was it? A uh, a uh, 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 Sega does what Nintendo don't. <laughs> and. Sega then decides to sort of try this like nicer, kinder approach. They're doing all these press conferences. They're talking about the educational uses of the Saturn. They're giving Saturns to schools for educational stuff. But slowly, they were being pushed out of a market that they had scraped so hard to obtain. By the end of the year, they were being outsold by both Sony and also, weirdly in the United States, a strange resurgence of interest in the Super Nintendo. Sega placed third that year. The Saturn actually placed below the SNES that year. I feel like whenever you take the this is educational angle, it's an indicator of how cheap you are. Because it's always a, a cheap way or a try to sell something to parents. Because you know parents have the money and parents finance this. And you're like, I'm going to say it's educational to trigger something in the parent. So because it's for parents that feel bad about parenting. Mm -hmm. So so they're like, uh, I, 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 
I'm not really interested in improving my parenting style, but I can throw money at something. <laughs> well, if they're going to sit in front of the TV all day, at least it can be educational, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you can you can tell to your friends, I bought this because it's educational, right? It has educational value for my child. So yeah, I think that's a cheap shot and might yeah. be an indicator of the downfall of society, no, of Sega. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll point back to the day that they had a press conference and touted the educational capabilities of the Sega Saturn. <laughs> it was that, it was that exact moment when they gave it to Carson S Smith High School. That yes. was the day that society truly began. It's circling of the drain. No, it might be an indicator of um, Sega uh, struggling. <laughs> Yeah, and they were. So in 1996, <clears throat> Sony lowered the price of the PlayStation again. Sega was forced to respond, dropping the price of their console to $299. They released a cheaper version of the Saturn that came with a bunch of games, and they dropped the price of new games from $70 to $60, which, pause, they were selling new games for anywhere from $80 to $70 back then for the Saturn. I remember that that was normal um, because my first game that I bought myself, which was Croc Legend of the Gobos for PlayStation, mm. was fucking expensive too. It cost me like 80 Deutsche Mark, which is like seven, $70 or something. That sounds about right. I say confidently, even though I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Good. Yep. Uh-huh. It was really expensive. It's like one of those times when you try... <laughs> I'll tell you all this. Docs is such a shit. I love him. He will make up German words that he tells me for things. And I'll be like, how do you say that in German? And he will make up a word and I will internalize it and learn it. And then he'll go, <laughs> I can't believe you're so gullible. <laughs> Deutsche Mark is the old German currency before the euro. Deutsche Mark is what Dogecoin became, right? Like, yeah, it's Dogecoin. Doge, Doge let's, coin. I think you're saying it. Let's wrong. say yes to this and continue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. So, so, <laughs> so they lowered the price of the console. They lowered their price of games, but they it was becoming very clear that they could not keep up with the resources that Sony had. The Saturn was more expensive to produce than the PlayStation. And then, in the summer of 1996, the Nintendo 64 hit the market, and it did very well. Those in Nintendo had predicted that the much of the market of the N64, like much of this market that they would inhabit, rather, would come at the expense of Sega. And it turns out that they were right. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but the following year, Nintendo controlled 40% of the market, Sony had 47, and Sega had around 12. Things were not looking good. And if you're a consumer on the outside, like, Nintendo had fucking Mario in 3D. You can play as Mario in full 3D. That was insane. And how could how could the Saturn compete? Yeah, no. But I'll say, in Japan, 1996, again, two totally different markets. It was the golden year for the Saturn. 351 games released just in Japan in 1996 for the Saturn. But the West didn't see many of these releases. People started looking for imports to pad their gaming library. And there was some good stuff. There was some good games. Shin Megami Tensei, Grandia, but PlayStation was just getting better things overall, which we'll talk about in a later episode, and Sega couldn't compete. Around this time, 
rumors begin to swell that Tom Kalinske was going to leave Sega. People tried to guess where he might go, speculating that he might go and work for Disney, I guess, because like someone spotted him having lunch with a Disney executive or something. And around the office, people said he just seemed like he wasn't as intense as he used to be and that he had started falling asleep in meetings. Although uh, there's a bit on that. Like that was like kind of reported on like Kalinsky's on his way out. He doesn't even care. He's falling asleep in meetings. But the Michael Latham guy um, from Sega America, he had this to say, quote, he would fall asleep on, on occasion in meetings. That is true. These were nine hour meetings. Sega had this thing for meetings. You'd get there at 8 a.m. and you'd be out of the meeting at like 4 p.m. So he wasn't the only person. <laughs> That's maybe a very important addition to that fact that he would fall asleep in meetings. That they all right? just, they had sleepovers. Sleepover meetings. <laughs> all right, bring your jammies. We're having a Sega sleepover. Yeah. And you could see all the different planetary consoles up on the ceiling. They glow in the dark. We have so many because we can't sell them. <laughs> please, please take them as a parting gift. Please give them to your friends. Please, please take them. <laughs> Do you know how many people choked on sandwiches to sell this console? Please. Too many. Too many. Too many lost. No. Too many lost. <laughs> okay, so... The Saturn was doing very well in Japan, but as it continued to falter in the U.S., uh, Sega Japan started to blame Sega of America. And slowly, Kalinsky stopped fighting decisions that he believed to be incorrect. Nakayama started making frequent trips to the U.S. headquarters and taking more control over how the branch was run. Kalinsky, in kind, then pretty much stopped caring about his work. There's a good story in the book that I mentioned earlier where I guess the marketing team sent out this really bad advertisement that they were going to send. They're like, what do you think about this advertisement? And Kalinsky apparently just sent back a memo and all it said was, quote, have we lost our collective minds? <laughs> so um, he's, he doesn't seem like he's in a good place. Um, Maybe at some point it, it's also like if you hate your your bosses so much and everything that, that comes to you at some point maybe you also lose the ability to sometimes appreciate things they do like maybe he wasn't even able anymore to see anything good in this it was about time he left right i think so so <clears throat> latham again had this to say quote it wasn't the failure of the saturn that made him lose interest it was the inability to do something about it he was not allowed to do anything the u.s side was basically no longer in control so <clears throat> On July 15th of 1996, Kalinsky resigned as CEO of Sega of America, though he did stay on for a time on their board of directors. Within the same week, the co-founder of Sega, David Rosen, resigned as chairman, and Nakayama resigned as CEO. Although many of these people mostly just changed roles within the company, like they didn't fully leave. The new president and CEO of Sega of America was a guy named Bernie Stolar. So... This guy was someone who had been an executive at both Atari and Sony previously, and he presided over what was left of what would be the Saturn's future. His take was that the Saturn was just hurting the company at that point, and they just needed to completely move past it. He decided that they were going to stop spending money advertising the Saturn on TV, and he went to E3 where he said, quote, Saturn is not our future. 
on stage. So uh, if you're a Sega fan back then, that pretty much ends any hope you have for the system. Wow. By the middle of 1997, you look like you have something to say. I'm just Hold saying, it, it feels like they've been stabbing their brand a lot. And whenever you think like, oh, this is going to be the reason why it, why it all went to the worst place it is, they, they take another knife out and they're like, hey, let's shove this in there. There's still some room. <laughs> the way I described this to my fiance when I was working on this episode was, imagine if, <laughs> imagine if Sega pulled out a pistol and shot themselves in their right foot and they screamed, ah! Oh fuck! Oh, that really hurt. And then they took the pistol and they shot themselves in the left foot too. And they screamed, "Ah! Why would Sony do this to us? Why, Sony? Why?" And then they just kept firing until all of their toes were gone. And maybe you can even maybe beforehand, Sony put a picture of themselves on the shoe to make it seem like the shoes are Sony. <laughs> <laughs> what i'm wearing sony of america shoes oh my god blam, 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 blam. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> by the middle of 1997 the saturn had started to struggle even in japan now some of this is attributed to the fact that sega tried to merge with a company called bandai which didn't work and then brought them a lot of bad press then you have all this mixed messaging coming from executives and rumors that Sega was already working on another console, and things started to drop off. Big-name games started getting canceled. In March of 1998, Sega announced that the final three games would come that year, House of the Dead, Shining Force 3, and Burning Rangers. After that, the system would be done, and they would move on, as Stoller put it. Quote, We tried to wind it down as cleanly as we could for the consumer. Again, we knew that the consumer was our judge, so we needed the consumer for the next round of what we were going to do as a company. So we did it slowly, maybe a little bit more slowly than I would have liked, but we did it that way. And I think we didn't hurt the consumer, but <laughs> the damage was large. When the Saturn was discontinued, they had sold roughly 2 million units in the United States compared to the 10.75 million PlayStations at that point. Though I will note that Sony liked to inflate their numbers a bit because they would only report what they sent out, not what was sold. But we do know that Sega lost $450 million in sales in 1998 alone. They started cutting costs, and they also cut a lot of jobs. The Saturn had a life for a bit in Europe and Japan for a bit longer than it did in the U.S., but Sega's brief time to shine was over. And so the Saturn hung on for a while, at least in Japan, like I said, but the U.S. market was in shambles. Third-party support for the Saturn stopped around 1997, and then Sega stopped supporting the Saturn completely in 1998. Sega wouldn't stay out of the market long, however, and rumors began of Sega's next system, which would eventually be known as the Dreamcast, mm -hmm. but that's a story for another day. Cool. And so ends the tale of the Sega Saturn. You ready to wrap up? Yeah, what a nice tale. What a... Uh terrible disaster this is um <laughs> just awful just awful but it explains a lot i've always wondered why sega just disappeared and i guess this is part of that story yeah i'll give you my hot take on it in a minute so let's wrap up here a little bit 
Kalinsky went on to work for a company called Learning Technologies, which is known for their LeapFrog line of educational systems for small children. Um, <clears throat> I think they might have eventually rebranded just as LeapFrog. And we didn't get to talk about this much, but like I said, he was very famous prior to his working at Sega, and he had worked with a toy company called Mattel and was their CEO for a while. So with all this stuff that he had done, in 1997, he was inducted into the Toy Industry Hall of Fame as well as a bunch of other awards that he claimed over the years. Um, I know he was on the board for the Toy Manufacturers of America for a few years, and he moved on to some other stuff. I think the latest things that I could find about him was that he's like still on the board of a bunch of places, um, including a company that develops cancer drugs, and I think he is still the vice president of LeapFrog. Okay. Hayao Nakayama stayed with Sega for a while. He floated around to various roles in a few different companies, including Microsoft Japan. And currently, he is the CEO of Amuse Capital, which is apparently a venture fund that he runs. Mm -hmm. So here's my hot take. Let's talk about some good stuff about the Saturn. So there were some really good games that came out of it. I mean, Grandia comes to mind. There's a good Street Fighter game on there. Um, Street Fighter Zero Three. X-Men Children of the Atom was on there. Uh, if you don't know that game, it was the game that solidified the relationship between Capcom and Marvel, leading to the Marvel versus Capcom games. Kojima uh, had a few games ported onto the system. And so there was some, you know, there's some good stuff on there. And what's interesting to me is looking back is that some of the Saturn's games have actually held on a bit longer and are received a bit better today because the 2D graphics of the era still hold up, but the 3D graphics of that era look really bad to us, right? Mm, yeah, I mean, think about it. That. You could make a 2D game today and it you, you could look at it and go, was this made today or was this made 20 years ago? It's hard to tell. 2D graphics are almost timeless right it's they hit sort of the pinnacle you'd have to be an expert to see the difference exactly yeah also i would say that the tech was really great for its time it was hard to um you know it was hard to code for hardware as good as the saturn rather um which i guess was like a pretty big problem but had the system not gone through so many issues it could really do some neat things so like for example with the way that the chips were built you could render the background of a game separately from everything else. So you could do stuff that the PlayStation had a hard time doing. And so in Japan, they also released um, an online service that you could use with the Saturn called the Sega Netlink. And it came with a keyboard. Uh, I think eventually they announced they were going to do something called the Sega Pluto because they just love this planet theme um that had a modem like it would have had an integrated modem but that didn't pan out when sega started you know hitting these financial troubles but even still the saturn was comparatively easier to code for than an n64 and if used correctly it could do some really neat stuff that the playstation couldn't but it just never had its time to shine yeah so what what killed it then why was it a commercial failure well i told you most of this throughout the episode but uh big ones the infighting between the U.S. and Japanese branches of the company. Everything I read was that as time went on, they just bickered over every decision. The Japanese executives were very restrictive on what they wanted the U.S. side to do, but I'm also not sure that everything that what the U.S. executives wanted was good. Like, they really held on to the Genesis and the 32X probably longer than they should have. And so 
it created this internal civil war that made it hard to unite around one idea. And so other companies like Sony and Nintendo took advantage of that weakness. And so they're, they're there trying to appease two very different markets, and it just didn't work out. Also, no Sonic, right? How do you launch a console without your brand's fucking mascot? It was the 90s. Can you imagine if the N64 came out and they said, yeah, sorry, there just won't be a Mario game on here? Yeah, Mario, um, Mario has to be in it. Mario has to be in it, for sure. Um, but those involved with the Sonic game didn't like it. Um, they were worried that a bad release might hurt the console, and so it wasn't a great situation. But if you want my hot take, I think the early launch and the weird distribution is what did it. This surprise announcement is really regarded as what killed Sega's chances to become this contender. Um, almost every article I read pointed to this as like the biggest console disaster um like regarding a release that is in gaming history um given specifically how high sega had been riding and how far they fell and so kalinsky spoke about it in retrospect quote had we waited until we had more and better games launching with all retailers instead of a few with marketing that could reach every player we would have been much more successful, even if that meant waiting for a late October or November launch. And so, to end his quote there, looking back, like this launch is just a, was just a terrible blunder. And I personally find this very interesting because I was I was a Sega fanboy for the longest time. I loved my Genesis, and if Sega had just stayed the course, I think they would have been fine. Even though other consoles were easier to work with. The Saturn just had so much awesome hardware that a skilled programmer could take advantage of. And so what ended up happening, though, is that in the end, Sega just came off as scared of everyone else, especially Sony and, and what they were bringing to the table. And, you know, at the time, what was selling well was just ports of arcade games. Like the ability to play an arcade game in your house was a big fucking deal. And Sega was awesome at that. They had one of the best coin-operated divisions on the market. And so maybe someday in the future we can talk about Sega's just absolutely insane hold on the arcade industry. But like, suffice to say, they had fucking talent there. And so just to cap things off, if they hadn't fucked up the U.S. market in the way they did, I think they would have done a lot better. And that's not to say that they didn't do well in Japan, and we shouldn't discount that, but they didn't succeed in the West for a myriad of reasons, and I think it was really part of their downfall. What do you think, Docs? I think I can't add anything to that. It's a bit scary how early you could see that that biggest problem coming off because they weren't united in what they were doing and unfocused. There, there was no horizon on which they could have succeeded. It was impossible. Thus, this story was in itself a self-fulfilling prophecy. And it's kind of terrifying because they had the market majority, right? I don't know that they ever actually overtook Nintendo in the US. I would have to check my stats, but they took a huge chunk of Nintendo's oh, okay. control. And they just threw it um, away by yeah, just tossed it. not sticking to their program. Yeah, very D. It's really interesting how the decentralization of this company was what made them succeed originally but destroyed them later and we'll do we'll do an episode on the dreamcast someday i think um which was the last of sega's consoles that they ever made you know at least an official console you could release stuff for not like a remake or something but um 
you know, the Dreamcast was pretty much just like a last dying gasp to try and save the company on that market until they eventually gave up. Yep. Um, and the the Saturn is really the Saturn and the 32X, that dual release of like, we're going to put the 32X out and we're going to release the Saturn early and all these really weird things. They burned all the retailers. Um, they burned all the developers. They burned the consumers. It's just, it's no wonder it didn't succeed. Yeah. And like, it feels like it was rash decisions to cover rash decisions to cover more rash decisions and this um it never panned out instead of slowing yeah. down once releasing something finished it's true well thanks docs uh i appreciate your time and thanks to all of you out there listening you got anything else you want to say i don't think so i hope that all of you have a good day and take care of yourselves and i hope you're all well have a good one friends enjoy the tail end of summer try and stay cool if you're stuck in one of those heat waves bye